From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Now, before we get rolling, a big thanks A big thanks to our Star Chamber patrons, Deep Paul and Tim Sullivan. Deep Paul and Tim Sullivan, I truly appreciate your support, and um, I can't uh, can't thank you enough from my heart. Thank you so much, Deep Paul and Tim Sullivan. Now, if you want to support the work we do here, please consider becoming an official donor at patreon.com slash strangeplanet, patreon.com. Slash Strange Planet. 30 years after his dramatic feature JFK and countless interviews, you might have thought legendary film director Oliver Stone had said pretty much everything he had to say about the Kennedy assassination, but not so. Now comes JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. It's a two hour documentary film based on the 1992 nonfiction book Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba. And the Garrison case by Jim DiEugenio, a frequent guest in this program, although it's been a while. And uh, the film, the documentary film, also based on newly declassified evidence about the case. And Through the Looking Glass premiered on July 12th of this year at the Cannes uh, premiere section of the 2021 Cannes Film Festival. And Jim DiEugenio, one of the world's foremost assassination researchers, of course, wrote the script. And he's standing by to talk about the new film. Again, JFK revisited through the looking glass. Coming up in hour two, Mike Lancaster was barely a teenager when he was asked to join the Merry Pranksters, a collection of comrades and followers of American author Ken Kesey back in 1964. Kesey and the Merry Pranksters lived communally uh, at Kesey's home in California and Oregon and are noted for the uh, the sociological significance of this lengthy road trip they took in the summer of 1964, traveling across the United States in a psychedelic painted school bus called Further, organizing parties and giving out LSD. And Mike will be here to tell us about a, a few of his many adventures in the 1960s, but he's here also to talk about the health benefits of something called structured water, structured water. Carlos Kajina is the technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer. And we are live streaming on my YouTube channel tonight, Strange Planet. Don't forget to head hit the uh, red sub button while you're there. Jim D. Eugenio wrote the script for Oliver Stone's new documentary film, Through the Looking Glass. Jim is the author of Destiny Betrayed, about the garrison investigation of the Kennedy assassination, first published in '92 with a second greatly revised edition issued in 2012, and Reclaiming Parkland, published in 2013, reprinted in expanded form in 2016, and then reissued with additional material in 2018 as the JFK assassination, The Evidence Today, which offers a detailed critical examination of the Warren Commission's evidence and conclusions as presented presented by Vincent Bugliosi's Reclaiming History, along with an analysis of the CIA's influence in Hollywood. He's also co-author, <clears throat> co-author and editor of the Assassination Assassinations Probe magazine on JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X. 
He co-edited Probe magazine from 1993 to 2000 and was a guest commentator on the anniversary issue of the film JFK re-released by Warner Brothers in 2013. Jim D. Eugenio, welcome back. How are you, my friend? Nice, nice to be back, Richard. I, I'd like to make one correction. All right, and um, this is not this is wrong at IMDb, and it's wrong at Wikipedia, and I'm still trying to figure out how it got this way. All right, the uh, the the film JFK Through the Looking Glass is not really based on Destiny Betrayed. It's an original screenplay. Ah. Okay, and when 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 you see the film, it will just say written by James D. Eugenio. The the film that's out now is a two hour version that was shown at the Cannes Film Festival, and that's what's selling all over Europe. Okay, it's sell, sold in several countries like Italy, France, and Spain. You know, so far in Europe and the three or four other places, they expect a UK sale pretty soon. All right. The long version of the movie, which is four hours, okay, that will be called Destiny Betrayed, okay? But that still will not be based on the book. That's an original screenplay also. Oliver just liked that title, okay? And so that's why he put it on the, the longer version, okay? The, as, as good as the short version is, I can tell you that the long version is, is going to be magisterial, Okay, so do you want me to explain how this got started? Yeah, I'd like to talk to you. I'd, I'd like to hear from you about how how you got together with Oliver Stone and and um, and how you became the the, uh, the scriptwriter for this. This is a, a major major accomplishment, Jim. Okay, th- th- this is what happened in 2013, the 50th anniversary of Kennedy's assassination. If you remember. What a pig out that was, okay? Um, Tom Hanks and uh, Vincent Bugliosi and Tom Brokaw and how they cordoned off Dealey Plaza. And it was just terrible, okay? You didn't have hardly any dissident views got through. And so Oliver and Zach Sklar, who did the screenplay for JFK, were attacked in the Chicago Tribune. Okay, I can't remember who the writer was right now. Um, and so they replied, and Oliver sent me the reply and asked me what I thought of it. Okay, and, and so I said, well, it's not bad, but I don't think you guys are aware of all the new evidence that's been declassified by the Assassinations Record Review Board. All right? And so Oliver, being the curious guy that he was, okay, and is... He said, can you send me some of this stuff? And so I sent him and Zach about a two-page memo of all the new evidence that the review board declassified. All right? And so then, about two or three years, two or three years later, he did the introduction for the revision of my book called The JFK Assassination, the evidence today. And I went down to his office, okay, to give him some input on that. And again, we started talking about all of this new evidence that the review board had declassified, but yet 
America hadn't seen. There had been a Persian blackout. All right. Even though the Assassinations Record Review Board was caused by him. Right. Right. <laughs> but if, if your listeners don't understand what that means, when JFK came out in 1991, it created such a sensation. Okay. I mean, if you weren't around, it was really something to behold. Okay. And so at the end of the movie, Oliver put a trailer on it, a moving title, saying that the files of the House Select Committee on Assassinations are classified until the year 2029. And so a lot of people didn't know this. And so they began sending in faxes and, and telegrams and phone calls, etc. Right? And it managed to actually create this whole new body of the government, an extraordinary uh, five-person team whose job it was to declassify the rest of the documents that were still, and it was, they declassified it two million pages, all right, in about four years, from 1994 to 1998. The problem was that the media hardly even knew that they were around, and they didn't publicize any of the discoveries. So when me and Oliver started talking about this, okay, these discussions went on and off for a while, and he got together with his friend and producer, Rob Wilson, and they decided, you know something, why don't we do something over this, okay? You know, why don't we do a counterpunch to what happened in 2013, you know, through these all these new documents and all this new information. So after a few discussions, we decided to go ahead and do it. And they had me be the writer because, you know, because I, I knew this stuff. I'm one of like five people in America who kept up on this stuff, you know. Right. And Rob became the producer and Oliver was the director. And so that's how the project got started. Right, and then we went through about six different drafts of the script. Okay, Oliver, you know, Oliver does as much work on his documentaries as he does on his feature films. He's very much a hands-on type of guy. Okay, right. is he easy to work so, with? What? Is he easy to work with? Yeah, well, I found him to be fairly easy to work with. I didn't have any major problems with Oliver, okay, throughout. I mean, because see, he's such a hands-on guy, you know, even in the editing process, okay. Uh, you know, every once in a while you'll have a disagreement. But about 90% of the time, 95% of the time, everything was fine. I didn't have any problems with him, all right. And he just gave – I understood what I was supposed to be doing. Okay, he's the director. Okay, I'm the writer. Okay, and so I understood what I was supposed to be doing. I was doing my best to carry out what he wanted done. Okay, and so we would go over to his house, and we would have like a two-hour discussion of the latest draft of the of the script. I would, you know, they in Hollywood parlance, you would take your notes down. Okay, and I would go home, and I would revise the script. And this went through five or six different drafts, all right? 
And I tried to put as much of the new evidence as I could into there, okay? In other words, the stuff that came out in 2017, right? Well, no, it came out from 1994 to 1998. But then what happened, then what happened? See, the review board didn't last long enough to get everything out. So they put on a lot of these memos and a lot of this information, they put on what they called a phased declassification program. They put a year on it. Okay, we're going to let this go in 2001. We're going to let this go in 2002. We're going to let this go in 2003. And a lot of it was that way. But since I know a lot of people who work on this case, I was made aware of these things that would be passed around. All right. And because of my website, KennedysandKing.com, you know, we, we put a lot of this stuff up there. You know, we're like one of the very few that do that. And so I was made aware of this stuff. Okay, so I, I knew what the breaking stuff really was. So then it became, once I had the script down, then it became a matter of getting all the people that we would need, okay, to, to get this information out there. And... We, I think on my original list, I had something like 35 people, okay? And we got something, we had a really remarkable batting average, you know, between, I think we got 29 or 30 of them. There were some of the people, because it dragged on, the shooting process dragged on into the early COVID thing, okay? And uh, so we... There were some people who didn't want to travel, okay, you know, and so, but we got most of the people that we wanted, and some people well, had. Well, who are some of the top the top people that we're going to see in the in the film, Jim, the, the, on your okay. list? The top people on your list. Some some of the people that we got that I think did very well, uh, and really helped us were David Talbot, the author of The Devil's Chessboard, and Brothers, the founder of Salon Magazine. He was so good that even the technical guys on the set, God, Jim, is the next guy going to be that good? You know, these, are, these are the sound man and the, and the uh, cameraman, you know, and the gaffer, et cetera. Okay. So he was very important. Okay. John Newman, uh, a historian of James Madison, who wrote JFK in Vietnam and Oswald in the CIA. He was very important. He actually did two interviews with us. Okay. Uh, one on JFK and Vietnam and one on Oswald, all right? Uh, we had Jefferson Morley, uh, who's done a lot of work on the George Joannides, uh, the guy who was kept secret from the House Select Committee, who was working for the CIA in 1963 with the DRE, all right? Uh, we have Lisa Peace, who did a lot of in, uh, good work on Indonesia, okay? Uh, and the whole, see, the film is is really two films. There's one part is about the forensic evidence, and that's where we use people like Cyril Wecht, the famous pathologist from Pittsburgh, Gary right. Aguilar, okay, out in San Francisco, another medical doctor who's done a lot of good work, David Mantic, who we flew in from Palm Springs, okay, he's very good, uh, Mike Chesser who's a neurologist from uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. We flew him in. 
Okay, and and those are the kind, those are the forensic kind of people we used, but we also did a historical angle to it, and we used the best scholars on the Kennedy presidency, you know, that we could find. People like Robert Ricoh from Stanford, people like Philip Muhlenbeck from uh, George Washington. All right, and 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 so we wanted to keep people. Uh, and and Bradley, um, oh God, what's his name? Um, he wrote a great book about the Indonesia overthrow called Economists with Guns. Okay, Brad Simpson from the University of Connecticut. Okay, and so it was, see what we were trying to show is that right after Kennedy's death, a lot of changes took place. Okay, that Kennedy had installed and was trying to work on during this presidency. Now, in the long version, when the long version comes out, you'll see how we show how Kennedy evolved into that kind of a character, the kind of a person that, you know, that essentially threw down the gauntlet to Eisenhower and John Foster Dulles in 1957 with his great Algeria speech, okay, which created a sensation, you know, when, when he made that speech on the floor of the Senate back in the summer of 1957, saying the United States has to get out of Algeria. We shouldn't be sporting the French. The French Empire just fell in Vietnam, and it's going to fall here. We want to be on the right side of history, okay? And uh, the guy who promoted the Ugly American he bought a hundred copies of that book, sent them to all the fellow senators, paid for an ad with his own money in the New York Times. Then when he became president, he helped get the film made. The State Department didn't want to have it made, but Kennedy helped push it through. See, that Kennedy, that angle of Kennedy, uh, we're, we're going to put in there. It's in there now, but it will be able to be in there in a longer take, okay, in the four-hour version. And so that's what we were trying to show. All these Any witnesses that took you have, place. I mean, you're in a race. Obviously, this is, you know, we're talking now 58 years. Well, Donald years. Sutherland is one of the narrators. Ah, Donald Sutherland fantastic. is one of the narrators. Okay, and, of course, he was played Mr. X in uh, Fletcher Prouty. In JFK. Fletcher Prouty, yeah. All right, yeah, right, he, who was disguised as Fletcher Prouty. And then we have Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, she does the forensic part. Sutherland does the historical part. Okay, all right. And we got, if you can believe, I still can't believe we did this. We got, if any of your listeners there are film aficionados, we got Robert Richardson to shoot the movie for us. This guy's won three Oscars. One for JFK, okay, one for uh, Hugo, and one for The Aviator. All right, Fantastic. so what you have here, <laughs> and it really, I mean, to, to make, to really... When you really think about this, Oliver Stone, three Oscars. Robert Richardson, three Oscars. Whoopi Goldberg, Whoopi Goldberg, one Oscar. Donald Sutherland, an Emmy and an honorary Oscar. Now, I know there has never been a JFK film like this before, a documentary, not like that. And in my honest opinion, and I'm somewhat of a film aficionado, I've never heard of a documentary with that kind of star power to it, 
that oh, it's many got the gravitas is incredible. I mean, Jim, you must be in a way pinching yourself because I mean, you've been obviously your <laughs> your uh, your work now is going to be up there on the big screen. This is. Do you feel like this is the culmination for you of all of your years of work? And well, in a way, yes, I do. Okay, you know, I, it's it's really nice that finally, okay. The a lot of the world as we know it is finally going to be exposed to a lot of these new developments in the JFK case, which I've been one of the only people you know, trying to exactly. get this stuff out there. Okay, you know, and so yes, it's 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 very nice, and and I really do hope you know that a lot of people understand now, you know what. I've been trying to do with Kennedy's and King, okay, and 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 my books, and you know, in in the long run, I think it I think it eventually will get to the United States and Canada, okay, you know, so that that's a Jim. I got to jump in. Pardon for. the interruption. We're going to take a quick timeout. We'll come back. Jim Eugenio wrote the uh, the script for JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, a two-hour documentary just premiered at the uh, Cannes Film Festival. And there will be a four-hour version coming out. Can't wait to see it. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with Jim D. Eugenio, and the documentary film is JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. So what are some of the, um, the things that we're going to see in the, the two-hour um, documentary, Jim? Are we going to hear anything about the latest, let's say, uh, revelations that came out 2017? Well, what we did in the, in, in the film is we concentrated on this, these, the so-called core evidence in the case. The trailer that's out there now, okay, by Altitude, which is a distribution company, right, okay, I saw it tonight. concentrates on CE399. That, mm. I think it's two minutes and 12 seconds long, that is only the beginning of us see one of my goals here in the film was to show that in a normal court case CE three nine nine would never be admitted. Okay, CE three nine of course is a magic bullet. Right. Okay. Right. It would never be admitted into a court of law. Simply because and we got Henry Lee, by the way, I didn't name him. Henry Lee is in the film also. And he has a wonderful vignette. I didn't know he used to be a captain in the Taiwan police force before he came to the United States. So when I met him at a Malibu, okay, because I, I, he wanted to see the questions we were going to ask him, I said, well, then you ran a lot of investigations. And he goes, yes, I did. And I said, well, then you should talk about chain of custody for us. Okay. And so he did. And so this is, and, and he does it so beautifully. He goes, the chain of custody begins at the scene of the crime. It goes to the police station. It goes to the lab. And then it ends up in court. And if those are not certified, 
if you cannot put somebody's initials in a day and a time, then you're going to have some problems when it comes to court. Now, of course, the chain of custody in CE399 doesn't exist. There is no chain. That's one of the things we really, really went into in CE399. CE we right, this is the bullet, the bullet that, that caused uh, eight injuries between seven. JFK seven. and seven injuries it went, and it Connolly. Went JFK caused two, went through Connolly, both his right. chest, his uh, right wrist, and his left thigh. This and then thing, ends up on a gurney in a hospital in pristine condition, and the bullet. The wrong gurney. It's right. the wrong gurney. All right. And so we're going to show this how this would never be admitted into a court of law. There simply is no chain of custody on it. And in fact, in fact, let me, let me give you a little preview. This, this bullet was supposed to have arrived at the FBI lab at 7.30 p.m., okay? Well, there's a very serious problem with this because the bullet was supposed to have been given to the FBI agent by the Secret Service at 8.45 p.m. <laughs> so here's my That's question. That's a slight problem. Yeah. <laughs> How did slight. it get to the FBI lab when the guy, the FBI agent, didn't have it yet? Okay, <laughs> Right, and so right. what happened, of course, is the FBI lied about this. They said that Elmer Lee Todd's initials, the guy who got the FBI, the guy in the FBI who got the bullet from the Secret Service at the White House at 845, they said his initials are on the bullet. Well, guess what? And I'm sure this is not going to be surprising to you, Richard. Elmer Lee Todd's initials are not on the bullet. So somebody pulled a big fibber on that one. Okay, something right. happened there. And, so and for is, those that not, some of not overly familiar with CE three nine nine, the magic see, board. See, see, this is what we were trying. This is what I wanted to do with CE three nine nine. What right. I wanted to do was to pull it out of the whole morass of these this trajectory argument. Okay, I wanted I, I wanted to get rid of that. I I said look. Arguing whether or not CE399 could do all those things is like a cat chasing its tail. Because CE399 never existed that day. It didn't exist in Dealey Plaza. It wasn't fired in Dealey Plaza. It was planted. And the question is, who planted it? Who planted it on the wrong gurney? Okay? And that's how you begin to find out who was involved in this case. So that's one of the things I'm giving you a little preview, you know, of, of what we of what we did in the film, you know, and and like Dave Mantic said, which are, you saw the trailer, right? Yes, I did. I yeah. saw the trailer. Dave Mantic said, the the problem is CE three nine nine is foundational, right, to both the right. Warren Commission and the House Select Committee. When in fact. Yeah. You can't have a real investigation of the Kennedy case if you think CE399 is real, because it's not. And without CE399, without it, uh, I mean, that, that, as you say, it's foundational because 
unless you have that one bullet responsible for seven wounds, then you have to have more than the three shots fired, right? You're, that's exactly correct. And if you have more than three shots fired, that means conspiracy. That means conspiracy. Right. Then you've got conspiracy. All right. So that's one of the things we did. Now, we had Doug Horn. I don't know if you know who he is. No, no. He was on the uh, the Assassinations Record Review Board. He did a lot of the medical investigation. He's on the program. All right. And he talks a lot about the autopsy that night. I'm sure you're aware of all the many problems that the JFK autopsy poses. Okay, first of all, why were there 40 guys there in the gallery that night? You know, what did you need all those people from the military there all that night? You know, why were they there? Okay, and one of the things they were there for, of course, was to limit the autopsy. There's, there was no back wound dissection of Kennedy's, and by the way, that's the magic bullet. Okay, that's the bullet. The bullet went through Kennedy's back and allegedly went through his throat is the magic right. bullet. That was never dissected. You know, dissection means that you track the bullet through the body to see which direction it came from and where it exited at. Well, in my opinion, these guys knew there was no track through the body, and so that's why the doctors were not allowed to dissect that wound. But even better, we have... Doug Horn, who was in the room when the chief counsel of the review board cross-examined John Stringer. John Stringer is supposed to be the official photographer for the Kennedy autopsy. All right? And Doug was right in the room when Jeremy Gunn cross-examined him. And so he ran him through some questions about, oh, you were there that night, you took all the pictures, etc. Why don't we walk over here and we're going to show you some of the pictures that are attributed to you of Kennedy's brain, okay? So, walks him over to this photo stand, shows him some of the pictures, and Horn, who was right there, said, Stringer got up from his seat. He walked over to the picture stand. You know, kind of excited. And he said, this is ANSCO, referring to the kind of film it was. I didn't use ANSCO. I used Kodak. Okay. Then he points at the numbers at the bottom. There's a series of numbers at the bottom of 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 the film print. And he says, you see these numbers? This means this was done with a press pack. I didn't use press pack. And then Jeremy Gunn then asked him, he said, well, you see how in these pictures the cerebellum is intact, that's the back of the brain near the bottom? He says, yes. He goes, "You you didn't recall that, did you? You thought the cerebellum was blasted. And he goes, yes, that's what I recall. And so then Jeremy Gunn asked him, are you ready to deny that you took these pictures? And he goes, as far as I know, I didn't take these pictures. <laughs> Holy smokes. So what, here what you have to, what happened another to these thing 
which would never be admitted into a court of law. Because if you're going to put in an illustration or a photograph, it has to be testified to by the person who either did the drawing or took the picture. So these brain photographs would never be admitted into a court of law. So the question then becomes, obviously, if you're running a real investigation, which nobody was, okay, who took these pictures? And why did they have to take another set of pictures? Why? Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the questions that we asked. If you can believe it, okay, (laughs) we were the first person to ask this question. Why did there have to be another set of pictures? Jim, we've got to take another time out. We'll uh, we'll pick it up on the other side. And Michael Michael Chesser is a neurologist. Okay, Okay. uh, Jim, i got to take a time out, so we'll come back on the other side. Jim DiEugenio is with us, and the new documentary film is JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, directed by Oliver Stone, script by Jim DiEugenio. Back with more of our conversation in mere moments. Stay with us. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Aha! What if one bullet made all seven wounds? Arlen Specter, he is the one that gave birth to the single bullet theory. What if one bullet went into Kennedy's back and came out his neck and then went into Connolly's back, uh, piercing the lung, destroying four inches of the right fifth rib, exiting from the front of his chest, going into the back of the wrist, shattering the distal end of the radius, and a six foot four guy like Connolly, that's a big heavy bone, comminuted fracture, exits from the front of the wrist, goes into his left thigh. Whatever you want, whatever you need, this bullet happily and readily obliges you. It is indeed a magic bullet. There you go. That's Cyril Wecht. What is he now? 90, 90 years old, uh, Jim? Still pretty sharp. Yes, yes. Yeah, he's, he's very good at elucidating all the trickery that went into the single bullet theory. Uh, now, let, let me continue what I was talking about. Yes, we were talking about the photographs, Singer, the Singer autopsy photos. That he took the photographs, okay, of, of the brain that are in the National Archives. All right. And so what we did is... We wondered why, why did, and so this is why we have a neurologist, Mike Chesser, on the program, because that's what he does all day, okay? He looks at x-rays and pictures of brains, okay? And so he, this is what he said. The upper range of a brain weight for a guy the size of John F. Kennedy which is about 6'1", 175, okay, would be around 1,380 to 1,400 grams. That's the top range of what it would be. Well, when they weighed the brain the day after the autopsy, it wasn't done that night, okay, it came in at 1,500 grams, which is more then the top range of a brain would be. Now, what makes that so odd, of course, is that anybody who's seen as a Bruder film will know that Kennedy got his head blown off. Yeah, most of his brain okay? ended up on the trunk of the car. Yeah, you see that whole stream of red and tissue going up, 
and then you see stuff going into the back, and then at Parkland Hospital you see all this blood and tissue that's in the back of the car, and Jackie Kennedy actually went out to the trunk of the car and retrieved part of his skull, and she gave it to one of the doctors at Parkland Can you imagine that? No. Holding no. your husband's brain in your hand? Unimaginable. Okay. Unimaginable. And yet okay. the brain weighed so, more after afterwards than it should have. Now, now, how is that possible? How Somebody else's brain. How on God's green earth is that possible? And so then we, we went back and looked at some of the archival stuff, and we got Mike and Gary to talk about this. This doctor says, no, a large part of his brain was gone. This FBI agent says, no. There was about one quarter of his brain was... So in other words, who took those pictures? And so what we did, which should have been done a hell of a long time ago, we tried to find a suspect who actually did take those pictures. Okay, and so what we centered on was a guy named Robert Knudsen, who, and by the way, to show you how bad the Warren Commission was, you will not find Stringer's name in the Warren Report, and you won't find Robert Newton's name in the Warren Report either. Robert Newton, one of the most mysterious figures uh, in the JFK case, was not interviewed at all by the Warren Commission, but he was interviewed by the House Select Committee, but they didn't print his interview. And as Doug Horn says in the film, the reason they didn't print his interview, he thinks, is because everything he told them was contrary to what they printed. He says that he was called up the day of the assassination, and he was told to accompany Kennedy's body to the morgue at Bethesda. And he said he took some pictures. Okay? Then we have another witness who was at another place that was not the Secret Service Photo Center, Sandra Spencer, who said she saw these different pictures, okay, that are not, uh, you know, allowed for in the official collection, all right? So, see, this is one of the things we tried to do. We tried to pose questions that had not been posed before, and we can only pose these questions because of the ARB. The ARB declassified Newtson's testimony from the House Select Committee. The ARB brought in Stringer and confronted him with these pictures he says he doesn't remember taking. Okay? See, that, and so, and so the you, American you think public Newtson or the Canadian public, our, our good sisters and brothers to the north, okay, you know, they, they've never been exposed to this stuff. No. So no. this will be the first time, you know, that a broad audience is finally exposed to all these very real questions, which, in my opinion, you know, utterly decimates the Warren Commission report. And see, when I was writing it, this is one of the things I was my objective. I want to make this thing so full of new stuff so full of genuine stuff, okay, that's backed up and that's solid, that any objective person, when confronted with this material, 
would have to say that the Warren Commission is worthless. That was my objective, okay, when I was writing it. Okay. All right, Jim, I've got to take another quick time out. We'll come back and uh, discuss further. This is exciting stuff. JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, brand new documentary just premiered in Cannes Film Festival. Jim Eugenio wrote the script. He's with us. Back with more of our conversation in mere moments. Stay with us. If you study this operation, it has all the classic machinations of a black ops. That's all. You know, it's just basic exercise. It's the way they do things in foreign countries, and then they did them here. If they brought some snipers in from uh, Vietnam, that would probably be the most likely scenario because they're good shooters and uh, they can be trusted. You don't want some crazy Cuban out there who has a right-wing agenda shooting at them. You want to set them up. You want to bring Cubans in to scenery so you confuse people. Oswald is great scenery because what a story. Assassins who do these things for psychologically insane reasons, killing McKinley or killing uh, any of the, they always take credit for it. They're, They're proud, proud of it, of it usually. <laughs> he he said, I'm, he a said, patsy. I'm a patsy. And, you know, and given what we know about his movements in the last few months, uh, it, it's, it's, you know, no one will go there. There you go. That's uh, Oliver Stone. I believe he was being interviewed by uh, David Talbot. You mentioned Talbot earlier from a Salon. I'm thinking, you know, Jim, that uh, Oliver Stone probably wishes he he knew you and had you around when he was shooting the original JFK. There might there that film may have looked might have looked even more different. Like there may have been more things in there that he didn't know about. Right. Well, I actually think I could have helped him. Okay, you know, even back then, when before the ARB, I think I could have helped him uh, because I knew a lot about the whole Garrison investigation at that time. Okay, which some people didn't know because that's what I was concentrating at at the time. So yes, and now he actually has my book in his office. You know, the JFK assassination, the evidence today. He right. has about ten copies, and he gives it to people when they come in. <laughs> so yeah yes yes i i i think so all right in the uh, in the documentary now he's talking two- about oswald he's talking about oswald there right yes we have some really really interesting stuff on that side of it john newman knows a guy named malcolm blunt who's one of the great researchers from the united kingdom and he got to know a guy named Tennant Bagley, okay, who used to work for the CIA. I think he worked for 23 years. And he worked uh, with James Angleton. He was the chief of station, I think, in Brussels, okay, and very, very familiar with how the CIA operates. And so what we did is we took the, some of the documents that were coming in to the CIA about Oswald when he defected at the time of his defection. And it's a very, very, very odd routing system. They did not go to where they should go. They did not go to the Soviet Russia division. They went directly to the Office of Security. Okay? And they stayed there. They stayed there. Even though... For example, the Navy Department was sending seven copies. They didn't get distributed. 
to where they should have been distributed. So Malcolm got to know Bagley, and so one day they're having lunch, and he says, you know, I'd like you to look at this for me, okay, since you've been in the CIA for so many years. And he said, and so he goes, what do you want me to look at? I want you to take a look at this routing system of these files that were coming in to the CIA. And he didn't say who it was, all right? And so he drew it. He drew it because they come into the mail. They don't go anywhere else. They only go to the office of security, and they stay there. They don't get distributed. So he draws this intake, kind of intake map in front of him. And so Bagley looked at it for about a minute or so, and he turns to Malcolm, and he says, all right, from this diagram, do you think this guy is witting or unwitting? And Malcolm said, well, how the heck do I know? And he goes, well, why don't you just take a guess? Do you think he's witting to what's going on, or do you think he's unwitting? And Malcolm says, all right, unwitting. And Bagley came right back at him and said, no. This was a witting, routed-out plan in advance. And so for the first time that I know of, you actually have a CIA officer on the record as saying that Oswald's defection was a plea, pre-planned fake defection. I don't know any other CIA officer who said that before, but that's we explosive. have it. That's explosive. Okay, in, in, in our film. And so that's what Oliver's talking about there, that you couldn't find a better guy. You really, you know, you know right. you, if you were dreaming up a scheme to kill Kennedy and pin it on a patsy, you couldn't find a better guy than Oswald. Well, let me ask okay. you about something that happened in uh, and this. I think this came out uh, in in 2017 when there was a bit of the, uh, the some of the files came out in 2017. Yeah, and you were probably the one that that found this and brought it to my attention. But Richard Helm, CIA director at the time. Um, in 75, he was asked a question about the possibility of Oswald being a CIA operative. And he the, – the, the first part of the question you – know, the question is in the record and then in the memo. And then the, – but the answer just stopped short. And we didn't – we don't hear the response from Helm. Do you remember that when that came out? Okay. The, all right. I, I know what you're talking about. And that is not what it was presented to be. Uh, that was continued, except they didn't have the continued page, okay? Uh, but it was continued, and, and, and Helms, Helms did answer the question in a uh, negative way. Okay, so that okay. was kind of a false alarm, okay? Now, but I will say this. In the longer version of the film, I know one thing I've talked to you about in the past is Mexico City. Ah, uh, yes. Okay? And that is going to be, in the long version of the film, that is going to be a very, very interesting subject. Okay, if you recall back in 2017, when this was making a hubbub because the, everybody thought Trump was going to declassify the last of the documents, and then he backed out at the last minute. Okay, one of the things they were talking about was Mexico City, Oswald being in Mexico City. Well, we're going to argue 
that it's a very, very questionable call that Oswald was ever in Mexico City. Right. Okay, with some of the newest evidence that that we have out there. For and instance, that, again, is foundational, even, like CE399. Uh, that's foundational, right, to the case. <laughs> this case, Richard, I'm sure you're aware of this. This case is made out of paper mache. Okay? You know, anywhere you stab at it, it gives way. Okay? I don't care what part of it is. It was all put together after the fact. Okay? So even the CIA plants inside the Cuban embassy, even they said, we never saw this guy. And so the CIA didn't want to take that. They didn't like that answer. So they went back and they asked him again, said, are you sure that you never saw this guy? And he said, no. And they asked the other plant also, are you sure you never saw this guy? They were like begging him, please say yes. <laughs> And Jim, just about no, out of time we here. We never saw this guy the whole time. We were here every day for eight hours a day, and we never That's saw it. this guy. Yeah, okay. without Mexico City and without CE399, uh, as you say, it's uh, it's a house of cards. We're just about out of time, Jim. So are you saying right now that the film is intended for the European market only? We may not see it in North America? Well, right now it's, it's selling in the European market. We expect a U.K. sale. Very soon, as as far as I know, as it hasn't sold in in North America yet, but they're working on that. See, I think the strategy was to have it make so much noise at Con, which Oliver did achieve, that yes. they couldn't turn it down in the United States. Are you? And you can't the, believe and all the, four, the people and, were screaming to see this movie. <laughs> right. And what about the four-hour version? When might be? When might we now see that? that? That, they're working on that one now, okay? And so if that doesn't get broadcast, okay, because it's too long, then that will be on streaming. That will be available on streaming. Fantastic. All right. Well, Jim, again, congratulations. This is, uh, this is monumental. All the, all the work over the decades you've done, and it's now it's up there on the big screen. And uh, I think this is going to push the needle. How about you? Yes, I do think it's going to make a lot of noise. Okay. But All Richard, right, my friend. I won't forget yes. you. I'll still do your show. Okay. <laughs> That's it. Don't go Hollywood <laughs> on me now. Don't go Hollywood on me now, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> okay, partner. Thank you Congratulations. so much. All right. All the best. James D. Eugenio, Kennedy'sandking.com. Kennedy'sandking.com. All right. When we come back, we're going to meet an old hippie from the 1960s, traveled with the Merry Pranksters across the, uh, the United States on that psychedelic bus further, met the Grateful Dead, and now, and now he's singing the praises of something called structured water. We'll tell you all about it on the other side. Don't go away. <laughs> 